Welcome to ArtsCast Nebraska, a podcast about the creative activities and research of the faculty and alumni of the Hickson Lead College of Fine and Performing Arts at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Chris Marks, Associate Dean of the College, and it's my privilege to share with you these conversations about the fascinating work that our faculty and alumni do in the Fine and Performing Arts. In this episode, I speak with Marcus L.A. Garrett, an assistant professor in choral conducting in the Glenn Korff School of Music. Marcus's research and performance showcase the work of black choral conductors and composers. We'll hear him talk about his experience as a student at Hampton University and his interest in the choral composer R. Nathaniel Dett. I began the conversation by asking him about his early experiences singing choral music. The, the music that I was most passionate about was at church, but I went to very contemporary churches, so it was just contemporary Christian and gospel music that we did. Uh, I was able to be in a, a traditional choral ensemble in high school, and I, it was, I believe, my junior year when we sang the Christmas portion of Messiah. And it, it was in that moment that I kind of realized, oh, there is some like really nice stuff out there. Do you remember hearing a choral performance that really was eye-opening? Wow. I mean, I, I attended so many performances because my teachers would mention some of them. And Carl Harris, I still remember him saying, hey, Virginia Symphony is going to do a performance of Mendelssohn's Elijah. Would you like to go? I didn't know what Elijah was, but it's, he said symphony, and he said, do you want to go? It was my teacher, so I said yes. And I went, and in the second part, you have the famous women's chorus. And at the end of the concert, he looked at me, and he said, you want to write something for women's choir now, don't you? I'll say, yeah. He's like, I could just tell the way you reacted while you were listening to them. So when did you start writing for choir? Well, I started writing for choir when I was in high school, not really knowing what I was doing. So I was using that notation program, knew nothing about theory. I was just putting stuff down in the in the program. And I think I did a few arrangements of the Star Spangled Banner. I remember doing that for like mixed choir. I had one for S, for soprano, alto, and tenor. I think I had one for women's choir and one for tenors and basses. They were all different. And they were all bad. <laughs> But it gave me experience in just like just trying stuff. And it some of them had moments that worked. So you talked about singing in choirs and you've talked about writing for choirs. When did you get up and start conducting choirs? <laughs> On to the podium. My freshman year, at the end of the first semester, Mr. Diller told us at the end of university choir rehearsal, which practice Mondays and Wednesday nights, 530 to 730, he said, hey, if there are any guys in here who would be interested in singing in another group, there is a community men's group that practices in here starting at 8 o'clock on Monday nights. And they've been rehearsing at Hampton for the last 60 or 70 years. The Crusaders Male Chorus. So four of us decided to go ahead and do it. And they gave us a little bit of money at the end of the concert. We're like, oh, cool. This is nice. And... I started writing a few pieces for men's voices and I shared it with uh, with the conductor and she said, okay, so you'll teach this. And I was like, whoa, no, 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 no. I don't do that stuff. I'm just writing it. And she was like, no, just get up and teach it. You'll be fine. 
So I taught it and um, I was able to kind of do a little bit of the conducting then, but she conducted the first couple songs. And then because I was a music education student, I had to take beginning conducting and we had to get ready for a big performance on campus with uh, two of the three choirs and teacher had to be away. So he was like, all right, Marcus, I need you to teach this piece. And I was like, whoa, like I barely have any conducting like under my belt. Like I have not had any methods, courses or anything. And he's just like, yeah, I'll let you, you just do rehearsal while I'm gone. So yeah, I was just kind of placed in front of people. I was blessed with so many opportunities and people who, again, just they saw things in me that I didn't re- even know or realize were there. And so you went to graduate school in choral conducting at? The University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was there for, for two years and learned a lot, mm-hmm. learned a lot. And it was actually there that I got my first ideas even without knowing it, but really my first idea is about what my research would end up being. Hampton being a historically black college, the music program there and at many other HBCUs is, they have a strong focus on ensuring that their students, whether they're music majors or not, know about the music that other black musicians have created. So I learned about so many of these composers and then I get to UNC Greensboro and I'm talking to my friends who can list every piece by Verity and Brahms, Mendelssohn, Bird and Talis, Benjamin Britten, all these folks. And I was like, well, I know like two of those, but what about Undine Smith-Moore and Hall Johnson and Jester Harrison and Betty Jackson King and Art Nathaniel Dudd and Harry T. Berlin? They're like, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm like, what do you mean? Everywhere I went and then I realized, oh, that's because every time we did concerts, we went to black churches all of um, the times we collaborated with other choirs, it was with other black choirs. So we all had the same mission. So we got to hear all of that same type of music. And so then I was just like, oh, so this is actually not how everybody um, works in music. They're not thinking about these kinds of things. So did that experience encourage you to share that music with these folks who hadn't heard of it? Or did you feel more like, oh, I need to learn all the stuff that they know or or both? Both. Yeah, Yeah. definitely both. Two of the papers that I wrote were about Black composers. And then the music that I chose for my time conducting ensembles, I chose three pieces and all three of them were by black composers, yeah, Robert Harris, Persephone Powell, and Adolphus Hale Stork. And so I felt like it was part of my job to ensure that they got to experience those kinds of things. Yeah, but after that, I then taught at Historically Black College for five years. So it was easy for me to just put all the stuff that I had already thought about, especially the things that I had learned when I was in undergrad, was able to use that. But then also say, well, there were still some things that I did not learn that I felt like I probably should have when I was in undergrad. So I tried to pull both of those together to give them as balanced an experience as possible. And then it wasn't until I got to Florida State for graduate school where I realized, okay, like research, research is a big thing and you can focus on whatever you want to focus on. So I got to see my teachers and even some of my classmates who were 
plenary session speakers or giving intercession presentations and talks here and at every conference you go, they're talking to folks about whatever they're interested in. And I was like, okay, well, let me try talking to some people about something. So put a proposal together and it worked. It worked three times. I submitted three in like a two month stretch and all three of them got accepted. And my teacher was like, maybe you should have only accepted one of those, but hey, you accepted all three now, so you gotta do it. <laughs> but it was it was good practice for me. Um, so I've been able to now talk about that kind of stuff for the last three and a half, three years, three and a half years, mm-hmm. I guess. So you juggle a, a varied portfolio of research and creative activity, don't you? I mean, you're you're doing. You already said you do research and you're doing presentations, but you're also uh, singing and conducting and writing and arranging. So, um, how do you balance all of those things? I I get bursts of inspiration or excitement at times, and I just try to ride that wave as long as possible. So do you see composing and arranging as two different things, or do you approach them the same way? It depends on the type of arrangement. Because the spiritual arrangements, I'm literally just taking a melody and adding anywhere between three and eight parts sometimes to that. Why is it that there are some people who feel that if you take an existing melody that's a folk melody and you add something, it is less than when our Renaissance predecessors would take folk music and just maybe change the words and that kind of stuff. Instead of it being about, you know, drinking, it was Kyrie Eleison and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's like, why is it they can do a four-part motet based on a folk tune, but someone can do an arrangement of a spiritual and it be viewed as less than like it's actually the same it's actually the same thing when you break it down it just all depends on people's perception of the source material or how they view that composer so a lot of people have taken spirituals and arranged them especially for choir yes so what do you feel like you you either bring to it or or what do you take out of those melodies that's unique and, and personal to you? What are you trying to do with them that is for you? Well, when you look at the history of concert spiritual arrangements over the last hundred years, it went from being solely about preserving those melodies and ensuring that the music that was originally on the plantations did not just exist in a museum or in some collection that's in a library or in someone's archives. So that was really why it was that the first arrangers were doing that. As time goes on, people have been pretty much using the same top 20 (laughs) spirituals. It tends to be. Um, That's a gross exaggeration. But some say that there are about 6,000 existing spirituals. But we don't, we haven't even used maybe a thousand of them. Now, because people sometimes use the same spirituals in order to make it marketable in order for people to want to do it you got to do something different so it can't sometimes it can't just be about the harmonies that they choose to do or the counterpoint other times it's about really changing up the melody and there are some arrangements that you might see half a measure that is the same as the original well with Pretty much all of the spiritual arrangements that I've done, I try to keep the melody all like 95% at least 
close to that original source material. Um, and I also want it to still be prominent so that people just always remember this is the melody instead of always changing it up. I think that's that's probably that's one of the things that I've tried to offer. And then also while I was at UNC Greensboro, I had I will say an immersion in ecclesiastical Latin and just all of the choral music that has been written using those texts. And that was the first time that I combined spiritual melodies with Latin text. Hmm. So I've done that kind of stuff a couple other times just to see like, where could this go? And it's really an inspiration from, it's inspiration from R. Nathaniel Dett, who was a pioneer in using black folk music because he said that these melodies don't have to just be arrangements. Not that there's anything wrong with arrangements, but they can also be the source material for anthems and motets. Well, talk some more about him, because he's certainly a, a major focus of your research. So, so tell, tell someone like me who doesn't know much about him, what, what are you finding in there that has inspired you? So he taught at Hampton from 1913 to 1931. When I first started doing actual research into him, I then found out that he had written a lot about music. So in 1936, he published the Debt Collection of Negro Spirituals. And at the beginning of each one of them, there's a short essay that has some talks about some element of, of what he calls Negro music, um, a black folk music. So understanding the spiritual development of spiritual and those kinds of things. When his choirs would perform in New York or when they had their famed tour of Europe in 1930, he wrote extensive program notes so that people could understand what this music was all about. They performed music by our traditional masters, Brahms and Bird and that kind of stuff, but then they also would perform some of the then contemporary spiritual arrangements by some of his uh, colleagues, and then they would also do a significant amount of his music. Why not? He's there, and it was great. Some of it, to applause, there's a piece, Gently Lord or Gently Lead Us, where they had to sing the song a second time because the people just would not stop clapping. They were just like, we want it again. We want to hear it again. Like they sang it twice. It's great. Another account when they were in Europe, they were in Vienna and they were visiting uh, Salzburg Cathedral. And there was a guide who just said, hey, just you can come in, but just know that people are praying and just make sure if y'all sing anything, don't sing any of that jazz music that we know. Now you were looking at a, a group of all black students. So of course he just assumed that that's all that they did. I don't remember seeing that they actually ever sang any jazz in the choir. They probably didn't, but they did end up singing a setting of Ave Maria. And the guy was just like, oh man, that was beautiful. I've never heard of that. Whose was it? And that because they service was still going on, um, he was just like, that was mine. They said it really quietly. And I'm sure the guy was a little shocked because he was used to hearing Ave Maria settings by white men. And now you look at this very dark-skinned black man, and you're just like, oh, I didn't realize that you could write something like that. So, it, I mean, so many things have, uh, just about him as, as a human, as an educator, a conductor, a musician. I mean, he wrote an entry for a music encyclopedia that was all about black music. And he talked about some of the then contemporaries like Samuel Coleridge Taylor 
who people were looking up to and even black poets that people needed to know about because some composers had been setting their poetry and the like. I mean, he actually wrote an album, he wrote a book of poetry that was published in 1911. So he knew how to write not only music, but just put words together. And he was a fantastic pianist as well. One of your research areas you list as non-idiomatic choral music of black composers. Explain what you mean by non-idiomatic in that context. So when we, when most people think about black composers, they tend to, especially in choral music, they tend to think about jazz and spirituals. Um, Gospel can be kind of included with that. Not that it's necessarily choral music, but it's the fact that choral ensembles do perform gospel. Mm -hmm. So those are the idiomatic styles when it comes to classical music. And it's happening more and more now, but not too long ago, when people were first thinking of Black composers, they weren't thinking of the traditional concert music, the symphonies, anthems, motets, piano suites, all those kinds of things. And it takes me back to when I was in grad school the first time and was showing a friend a score of a cantata by Adolphus Hale story. And we were flipping through it, and I was explaining to him all the three movements, and he was excited about it. He was like, yeah, this sounds great. I would love to do it. Looks on the back page and sees a black man. Oh, I can't do this because I don't sing gospel. When did I say this is gospel? Educators have a responsibility, not just to teach the music, but to teach about the people who have written the music. Because perceptions can be reality for some people. And you can't fault someone for something that they don't know because they didn't know that it existed. You don't know what you don't know. So why would they go seek those kinds of things out? So I never get upset when people say that kind of stuff. I just see it as a challenge and as a way to to open their eyes to this wonderful world of music that has been neglected by so many. When we're thinking about, about textbooks, I've had so many people who just like, it's difficult to talk about this music because we don't know what music there is because there's not one resource that has, or even in some of the larger resources, there might be a page that references this kind of stuff out of 200, 400 pages. Um, And then also because people did not learn about it when they were in school, they then don't perform it when they get their own ensembles, which means that we don't have enough recordings of this. Like, do we really need another recording of Elijah or Brahms' Requiem? I, I don't I don't think so. I mean, it's nice that people still want to do it because it is good music. I'm not going to say that it's not. But there's so much more music that needs to be recorded so that people will know about it. This is a great time for all of that. Like, while we can't do as much as we want, we have time where we can then focus on filling in the gaps in so many areas. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today about your research and creative work. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure talking. Yeah. If you'd like to learn more about Marcus's research, performing, writing, and arranging, visit his website at mlagmusic.com. You've been listening to ArtsCast Nebraska, a podcast production of the Hickson Lead College of Fine and Performing Arts at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. This episode was recorded and edited by me, Chris Marks, with technical assistance from Jeff O'Brien at the Johnny Carson Center for Emerging Media Arts. Special thanks to Kathy Anderson and Ella Durham. For more information about the college, please visit arts.unl.edu. 
Thank you for listening, and remember to support the arts.